Freethinkers, and welcome back to the Free Thought Project podcast. My name is Jason Bassler, and with me is the Free Thought Project editor in chief, Matt Agarist. So, our guest this week is someone who transformed tragedy into empowerment, and I could almost guarantee that you will never think of law enforcement the same after hearing this interview. Our guest this week is Marissa Barrera. In 2017, Marissa lost her brother because of unwarranted and illegal police targeting and ultimately torture. She then had to become the family spokesperson, the family lawyer, and detective, piecing together the story and timeline herself days after the incident. Now, her and her family are still in a legal battle for justice for her brother, Big Mike, and the case even had a recent update, which she shared in the interview. Now, I also wanted to mention Marissa is a friend and colleague of mine here in Sacramento. She's very active. She's led several actions in the area for police accountability protests and Know Your Rights classes, which I participated in. And she's also started an organization for other families who have been affected by police violence called Voices of Strength. Now, her story is insane, yet inspiring. But don't take it from me. Here's our interview with Marissa Barrera. Hello, Marissa, and welcome to the Free Thought Project podcast. We appreciate you joining us today to talk about a topic that touches close to home. As far as I'm concerned, that's only part of your story because you use this life event as a catalyst to motivate you and inspire others. So as probably most of our listeners know, a big part of our work at the Free Thought Project for the past 10 years has been police accountability. And it's a focus of mine. It's a passion of mine personally now for 12 years. And we've had former law enforcement officers on this podcast to talk about their work blowing the whistle within their departments but we've never really had someone like you on the show before. And the reason I say that is because there's an important distinction. You know, we all hear about police violence around the country. And of course, at times in our own cities and communities, but not many people really know someone who's had their life turned upside down because of police violence. And in this case, um, that's exactly what happened to you when police in Woodland, California killed your brother in 2017. Now, your brother's name is Michael Barrera. Uh, Most of his friends called him Big Mike. And today, I was hoping to talk about some of the details related to that incident and also some recent updates to the case. And at the end, I was kind of hoping to maybe talk about and highlight some of your work with organizing and empowering other families that have also dealt with police violence uh, because in my opinion, that's that's very inspiring that you're doing that. 
So for those who don't know, uh, Woodland, California is a little bit smaller of a city. It's in the outskirts of Sacramento, about uh, 15 miles northwest of Sacramento. And it also has a police department that uh, believes that they're above the law. Now, Marissa, you've been in a legal entanglement with the city for several years now as they continue to try to delay the judicial process. And for some context, uh, I believe it's important to note that some police killings are, of course, circumstantial. Some are uh, impulsive in the moment, but some are also targeted. And your brother's killing appears to be, it has all the signs and indicators that it was indeed a targeted event, a targeted killing. And uh, he even warned that police were going to kill him days before his death. Now, I know it's a complicated story and um, maybe to a certain extent kind of picking at the scab, but do you mind, do you think you could give our listeners a brief explanation of his story and exactly what happened on that day in Woodland in 2017? Yes, absolutely. And thank you, uh, Jason and Matt, for having me on. I appreciate your guys' work and for sharing the platform with me to speak about my brother. I guess I'll start. Um, Michael was 30 years old when he was murdered by five Bolden police officers leading up to his death. Um, it was, you know, pretty, it's pretty crazy, his story. So bear with me. But leading up to his death, as you mentioned, he warned us about the police harassing him, specifically Officer Wright, who was the one who, in the end, um, I say finished him. He took his last breath by sitting on his back and um, suffocating him to death, essentially. And these, uh, what everything I say, we do have uh, documentation, we have proof. Um, it's all there now. Leading up to his death, uh, there were some things that happened. Um, there were uh, about a month before he did have an interaction with Officer Wright, where Officer Wright assaulted him. Um, at this point, Michael was at the hospital. It was a 5150 hold that the police brought him in on. Um, during this time, we had just lost my uncle. He actually, uh, two months prior, he actually had hung himself. And so my family was already kind of dealing with a lot from that. And one of my family members was worried about Michael. So it came to what we know as wellness checks, I guess, is what happened. And that was his first interaction with the police um, in this manner. And so during that stay, um, it was just a 72 hour hold. Michael tried to contest it, uh, but that's when Officer Wright assaulted him first. And this did happen at the hospital. My mom was also present. And uh, during this time, it was while Michael was handcuffed and restrained. So Michael did end up telling him, stop, stop doing that, stop doing that, you're twisting my arms. And, um, you know, this is a kind of a crazy detail and some people would probably want to hide it, but I'm very transparent with everything that happened. My brother, in this instance, he did end up headbutting Officer Wright as he was restrained. He made his nose bleed and uh, he couldn't, the officer couldn't do much there as they were at the hospital and they were, there's uh, recordings there and everything. So that did happen. And after that, before that, he was already having harassment. After that, you know, it got worse. Um, Michael, at the time of all of this going on, there were a couple different things going on. Michael was speaking out against 
some of uh, there was missing people in our community at the time. Two were missing teenagers who had been missing for a few months. The local police and sheriffs, uh, because both of the teens fell into the different jurisdictions, they were not looking for these kids. One of them was missing for five weeks. The other one went missing. They were friends too. They, the other one went missing four weeks after his friend before police even put out a missing people's report. So my brother was speaking. I actually also, um, my platform back then, I was I, I was a fitness trainer and that's what I was known for in my community. And I even used my platform trying to help these moms as law enforcement wasn't helping Michael as well. And so something I found out later because community members who I didn't even know after this, my brother was killed and stuff was coming out into the media, strangers actually sent me screenshots that four days before my brother was killed by police this way, he made a post about missing people, uh, questioning how many missing people are actually in Yolo County and why isn't, why aren't officials or the police really doing anything and looking for these people. That thread went up to oh, like about a hundred comments and within it, my brother spoke about wanting to uh, do something because law enforcement was that the people should start investigating he also mentioned the Patriot Act and how he's scared of law enforcement because at the, this point, he already had his instances with him and that they've already beat him up and tried to 5150 him. So when my brother was killed, just to fast forward to that day, there's a lot of details, but I've kind of learned how to kind of summarize it up the best I can. Um, on that day, the last, well, the day before my brother was killed, uh, I was texting him. I, I had a job, that, a full-time job, a uh, management job at the gym. So I was really busy. I was really tired around that time working a lot. But I we texted the night before. And the last words I told my brother was, good night. I love you. I'll see you later. And even though we were very close, it wasn't always, I love you at the end of the day. Um, but that was our last words. So the next day, my mom, she works for the clinic in Woodland uh, Dignity Healthcare, and she got a call from a lady at the hospital who was just an acquaintance. This lady was not supposed to call my mom. She actually, I believe she got in trouble for it later, but she was at the emergency room working when she seen my brother be taken in. And at that, that point, he was already deceased. But that's how we learned about my brother even being harmed, potentially. So my mom rounded us up, my, my other brother and I, my grandmother, and I went to the hospital. They were already blocking us off from the room that my brother was in. It was already so shady and we were not getting answers. At that point, my mom had, they had attempted to take her in to see my brother. And I'm speaking of the nurse and a doctor there twice. And they blocked him off said that they needed to clean him up a little bit and then by the time I got there because I worked out of town um, still hadn't gotten the chance to go in there we didn't know he was killed by law enforcement at that time their story was that Michael was just found in someone's yard and he was found deceased after some type of altercation 
It was not until later wow. that afternoon, like maybe like three hours later, after I had I showed up to my brother's house. I left the hospital. I realized they were screwing with us and we weren't gonna see my brother. And um just before I go on to what happened next, the chaplain of the hospital, um, I'll never forget what he said to us. It's he tried to take my mom in for that was the third person to see my brother. And they stopped him and he came in to do a prayer with us. And he, my brother was a man of God. He was a believer. And he said that Michael died a very violent and a very brutal death. And, you know, that, that we didn't know what happened, but we knew that much at least. So I left there. I, I go to my brother's apartment and mind you, they said this happened in someone else's yard, not near my brother's home. Well, it ended up being about three quarters of a mile from my brother's home. But I heard police were already at my brother's home and trying to go inside. So I showed up at the time with my brother's pregnant fiance. He had a 10 year old and a, a baby on the way at the time of his death. I showed up there immediately cops start chasing me. I see them. I'm starting to walk faster. I had my brother's keys and I get chased and I get threatened by these officers. They say, I can't be in here. Of course, I'm asking questions. At this time, I'm already recording all my interactions and they're just trying to scare me off, uh, not let me be in the public and even the view of, of my brother's apartment. Um, we we eventually it worked. We eventually start to walk away after after I tried to get into my brother's apartment with the key. They laughed at me. They told me it was dead bolted in from the inside already, and I wouldn't get in. And walking by, we could see through the patio um, back door that the house was in chaos. It was just a mess, and so we basically got shooed away. And then, so. That was our first interactions, police threatening me, police knowing that I just lost my brother and treating me like a suspect. Um, I sometimes look back to those videos and I'm like, wow, I really, I was really kind to them considering the situation. I was calmer. I, I knew to ask questions, but again, at that time, I still didn't know he was killed by police. But to fast forward to what actually happened to my brother, um, well, the story had changed from law enforcement in the first two days. It changed five times. And um, the first before the first narrative came out, we we wait. I waited outside of my brother's apartment. They didn't have a warrant at the time. My mom lived in the same apartments in a different area. So I kept going back and back and forth and checking on them. And when the sergeant who was supposed to give us answers, Sergeant Gunthree, he came in and he told us, this is the first person who told us any type of narrative and before media got a hold of it. He said that he didn't have all the answers, but that there was an altercation that started at my brother's home and that there was a lot of law enforcement involved. He emphasized a lot against my brother. It led to a foot chase to where he ended up becoming deceased and that was their story. He didn't know why, he didn't know exactly details, but 
with our family hearing this, I repeated it back to him. So I'm saying, I said, you're saying my brother was killed by a lot of police officers. He was unarmed. He was running. He wasn't attacking them and they still had to kill him. And their response was, well, my officers, you know, they didn't want to do this. They're all, you know, they're kind of beat up. They're really muddy. And we're like, well, they're, they're still breathing. But um, they use this, they use this fake narrative to clear the officers, right? In 2017. Yes. It was just a few months after they used, they, they still try to go off of that, that narrative. But so after that, that Sergeant told us that not even 15 minutes later in the daily Democrat, that's the local news. They had, their narrative was that my brother was a naked man, that he had a golf club, a pair of scissors, a knife, and that he was flashing people and breaking into cars. That was their narrative. And I definitely felt played. <laughs> I had messaged, he had left us his card. I hit him up right away. Like, what the heck? You know, how dare you guys? You just told us a completely different story. Well, um, within that same night, I myself walked down the street. I located the area where my brother was killed, the cul-de-sac. And um, the next morning, I got to work talking to witnesses, uh, potential witnesses, neighbors. Um, like I said, the story changed the first time in five days. They said he was attacking uh, officers with the golf club. Well, the next day they're like, oh, well, he didn't actually attack them. He dropped it. And the golf club was weird to me because my brother is not a golfer. You know, there's can't think of him just picking one up. But basically, we didn't find out. It took us forever. I knew ever since because we were being treated. We were wronged. We were very wronged. And they um you know their conflicting stories and narratives and i actually did get to speak to two different witnesses who i feel they told me the truth um one of the man the man who's seen my brother being killed he's he's a pro cop he's very pro cop you know he but he witnessed it and he told us what he's seen and it's not it's not good it's not going to be good for them when trial comes um but it did take us uh, about two years to get um documents to get the autopsy photos to uh get the audio the video i actually made record requests myself for a lot of this um, when uh we had a bill change out here sb 1421 which is something myself and a lot of families from california helped lobby for and that is for us to get the records when police are involved in misconduct or fatalities etc so once january 1st hit a lot of us filed those and I did get information on my brother's case um seeing the audio now like what they did to my brother is is really horrible Jason has seen it now I, I have shared that with him um some of it is off camera because they only have the body the dash cams but they do have audio um on their person so mm -hmm. a couple of the officers did have those on you can see my brother so that was also, what I was about I, to ask uh, what the what the body cam video shows that led to their qualified immunity being uh, revoked. Yeah, it shows it shows a lot. It shows a lot. So uh, first, I do want to share that Michael told uh, a couple a witness who he stopped at his house and he he asked for a glass of water. He said the police were chasing him and is on the end of the cul-de-sac where he was killed. That witness, his statements are that Michael told him that the 
that three men broke into his house and jumped him and that the police were after him. So that witness called the police to let them know Michael was there. He said Michael wasn't trying to harm him. Michael didn't, you know, wasn't being aggressive to him, but he did alert the cops. Michael, I think he caught on to that and he took off. So when he came back out, you know, Michael was gone. But that's where they caught up to him in the cul-de-sac. So my brother, the what the body cam shows is these officers showing up um, really fast, pulling up. They immediately come out with with uh, their guns drawn, taser. One of them had a taser. The other two had guns. There's, there's three officers at this point. Two of them are highly, uh, they have military background. And um, I feel that they know what they were doing when, that's my opinion. But if you watch the video, you kind of see them three people kind of cornering him into a spot where you can't, you can't view it from the body, the dash cams. Michael was, he was talking uh, smack to them. He was telling them, why are you guys trying to kill me? Um, like Yolo County, which is our county. Why are you guys after me? Why do you want to kill me? He's telling them to get away. He's, he isn't stopping when they tell him to stop, but there's a lot of distance between them at that point. Um, and when I, when, as I've learned more, what I see how, is that Michael was actually trying to de-escalate the situation, asking them to put their guns down. Um, at that point, he did have what appears to be a golf club in his hands. I'm, what I think is maybe he picked it up along the way. I know he was under attack in his apartment and, you know, we do have the right to defend ourselves, even when it comes to cops, but Michael didn't attack the cops. Um, and in fact, the, the golf club was a couple houses down, right? So he wasn't actually holding the golf club when the officers. Correct. Yeah. When, when the physical uh, altercation actually happened, Michael was trying to make space between them, asking them to drop their weapon. They said, drop the golf club. He said, this is not a dead. I'm not a threat. I'm not a life threat. I'm not threatening you. And uh, I feel like he was using his voice. He He's, he's doing what they're supposed to do, right. which is de-escalate. Yeah. And they are all trained in de-escalation and crisis intervention. So when Michael did end up dropping, you know, he knew he was cornered. He, he dropped the golf club. My brother actually, in fact, he had told me over the years, uh, we've both had, I've had, we, we don't trust law enforcement, you know, with our, how we grew up, um, where we grew up, we never did. And he had always told me not to ever try to fight the police because they will kill us. And my brother was a darker skinned Mexican man. And he's like, they'll, they'll kill me first because I look black. And my brother, you know, he, he had expressed that to me many times as, you know, we heard stories of police brutality. So, yeah, my brother ends up ditching the golf club. Um, they kind of get, this is where he's at, the point where he's in front of the house that he was killed at in their yard. And that's the older gentleman who witnessed most of this. He, from what I can see, because like I mentioned, uh, you're out of view in some areas, but from matching up the audio and the video, it sounds like the first altercation started when he was tased which that often does happen. We see that in these videos. And he was tased by Officer Lau, who tased him for 27 seconds. Their protocol, their policy is, and for the taser policy, no longer than 15 seconds because it can cause injury fatalities. 
and he kept tasing Michael so much that even one of the officers involved was having to tell him to stop because he was feeling the effects. So quickly, you can hear that on the audio and everything. They quickly get my brother down. I don't even think my brother fought back. Like, I don't even think he resisted. Um, I've been in situations and, you know, with police, that's, you know, that's what we're kind of told. That's how we tell people to help protect themselves, don't resist. But it doesn't always work. You know, it is, it's, it's good advice and we hope that it'll, it'll work for everybody. But some of these people with, they're not resisting and they still get murdered. So right. I know my brother felt at that time that they were, I mean, he expressed it and they were already going to kill him. Um, at that point, there's three officers on top of him, um, striking him, um, beating him. And, you know, that taste, that taser was going on for that long. And that's one of the early things I learned from the witness because I asked him specific questions. Well, you're telling me he was already down and in handcuffs while he was being tased? Yes. Yes, he was. And, you know, I already knew that was, that's not right. But once I've seen, once I've seen and heard all of this, you know, it took us two years. It's just horrible. But I always knew that what happened to my brother, it's more horrific than I could really imagine. And I was right. Certainly. And what's important to point out here is that he hadn't committed a crime. He was innocent when all this happened. At worst, he needed medical help and they offered him police brutality instead. And like you said uh, earlier in your story, you know, he was 5150. For those who don't know what that means, that means you're like involuntary committed for a certain amount of time um, because you're in a mental health crisis. And that's a, that's such a problem with with police in America is that they respond to instances like this in which people might be confused or, uh, you know, or just need mental help or any kind of help. And they respond with this brute force. And yeah, 27 seconds with a taser and you got five people on you, you're going to die. I mean, you can't breathe. You're getting the, the air squeezed out of you with all these people on top of you. That's what's going to happen. That's murder. That's why they had to lie and cover up their story. And, and it ultimately cleared them. So like, and, and then can you go into the, the details about like, what were they telling you for the five days that they didn't let you even see your brother? Yeah. Look, can I, I just want to go back real quick uh, to, yeah, sure, to his sure, killing. Sure. Um, Cause at that time there was just three, the officer that assaulted him before came up while it was already happening along with another female officer. He jams in, he hops out of his vehicle. He goes up to my brother from what I can make out. To me, I believe because he had injuries on his head, we didn't know exactly what they were. We thought a boot, but it sounds like he just goes up to my brother, starts stomping on his head while my brother's already face down with one officer sitting on his legs, uh, her whole body weight uh, on his legs, the other three officers. And so, yeah, my brother's already down. And then Officer Wright comes stomping on my brother's head. He's telling him, my brother's telling, already at that point had been telling them, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Um, my brother stated, I need water, help. He was screaming for help, you know, throughout this whole almost four and a half minutes. Um, so I just want that to be clear. Like even my brother could have survived after the taser and, and the beating and all of that. But they came in and inflicted more damage to my brother who wow. was defenseless and down, face down in the mud. So um those five days yes uh that's a crazy detail in our story as well some people think i'm crazy you know when they hear me talking but everything is true 
five days it took us to see my brother's body and it wouldn't have happened unless we fought for it so while we were at the hospital they do this tactic they're actually trained to uh treat families this way i don't know if you guys have heard of lexi pool it's uh, it was founded by a california attorney former law enforcement and something that they've shared is they they train cops they they do some of the trainings and stuff like that they actually train officers to question uh detectives and stuff after people are killed by police to question the families try to get bad information try to get us to say bad things about our loved ones before they tell us that our loved ones were killed um, they have some very scandalous tactics and um, people are learning more about it so wanted to mention that but at the hospital they were trying to ask some identifying um, questions about my brother about his tattoos about how he looked and uh, a lot of families do start giving up information because they're so they want information about their loved one. We caught on quick. I'm glad my mom did. She realized what they were trying to do and she shut it down and didn't answer any further questions. But they used what she did, which is he has a tattoo that says my niece's his daughter's name, Michelle. And she did say that. Yeah. And so they used those questions to take away her right to identify my brother, to spend those last moments with my brother. He was two doors down from us in the hospital. Um, you know, I have memories of it. I have flashbacks. Part of me wish I would have just busted in that room. I know I could have if I would have really shot for it. But, you know, they would have probably arrested me and beat me up in front of my family, too. So I wouldn't have been able to get out and discover all the stuff I did because I put in a lot of work and I went to work immediately. Um, so the first, after the hospital, they, they took my brother. They didn't, they didn't really have a reason. Just, we couldn't, we couldn't. And then, uh, they said after the autopsy, you guys can view his body, identify him, etc. Well, that didn't happen. Um, actually, so my brother was killed on a Wednesday. The autopsy was completed by Friday. I kept hitting him up, emphasizing that we need to see his body. My brother was killed by police. You know, this, we need to, we have the right to. And they called me and they said, well, we can release his body to one of the funeral chapels. So pick one, there's three in town. And then once we release it there, they'll let you see him. You know, I guess I was naive back then. So I picked one out of the three. Uh, I did not know that two out of the three are owned by the same owners and that they are in bed with the cops. Um, yeah, right when you think the story couldn't get any crazier. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So my brother, they they tampered with his body. They, they fixed it. And so at this time, I was very vocal about what happened with my brother in our community groups, on Facebook, and just on my Facebook, I was telling our truth, just like I still am. But two days later, you know, they're like, release him. We released him. They released him to one, the one I picked. I picked the wrong one, apparently. And the secretary who I made the arrangements with, I let her know, as soon as he's there, we want to come. We are ready. We'll be waiting. She called me back and she's like, well, I'm sorry, but you know, he has to have a lot of work done. She told me that. And I immediately, I'm like, oh, no, no, absolutely not. You know, try to shut that down. She uh, told me she would have the director call me. He called me on a block call, which is typically how police call. So I'm pretty, I'm almost positive he had police on the line listening in. 
and he was very weird with me. He told me not to put my phone on speaker just to da 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 da. He hung up on me, then he called me back. And he told me that if we wanted, we couldn't see him. That's what he just straight up said. And I started questioning, telling him stuff. And he's like, well, we're, we don't work on the weekends. So if you want to, if anybody wants to see him, it's going to cost you guys $1,500. And that's a lot of money. And that my only one person could come in. So I'm like, you're telling me only my mom has to go in alone and you're going to charge, you know, it was bullshit. It was more bullshit that they were doing to us. But I was vocal on Facebook. I had at least five different former employees from that funeral home contact me and tell me I needed to get my brother the heck out of there immediately. Um, how he, how they treat the dead bodies, how they treat families, that they, they do all the law enforcement funerals for free. They're in bed with them. They can fix his body, make him look just like before. So I took that advice and we had him moved to the Woodland Funeral Chapel. They treated us kindly there. Um, we did get charged $500 to have to move him, but we didn't get to move him till Monday because they say they didn't work weekends. So I'm no doubt in my mind that's when they had, they colluded to, to change my brother's body, fix the injuries. Because when his body arrived at the, the other one, the, the man, the director there, he couldn't even look at us in the eye. We had met with him earlier, signed the paperwork, and he was he, he was normal. But when we got back, he could not look at us in the eye. And um, we, he did let me and my family see my brother's body, no extra charges. He gave us our time, which was, you know, it was very hard. And we, uh, we noticed some things. We noticed, you know, I'd never seen a dead body like that. But we noticed in his forehead, it was looking like there was a metal plate in there. It was popping out more than my brothers wow. did. And so we did start questioning him. He was trying to avoid answering questions. But he did tell us because we had to rephrase him and stuff that that wasn't normal. That he doesn't know why there would be a plate in there. And that's not normal. But there was also a pretty faint at the time, it looked like faint injury on his forehead. Um, but now that we have the autopsy photos and everything is tied in and uh, we got a lot of the puzzle pieces, not all of them still, we see that injury in the autopsy and it's it's obviously worse in there. You know, they, they, they obviously did do work on my brother. And, you know, when I was trying to speak for my brother and tell our truth back then, the whole town and community besides a few who you know supported us but for the most part everybody attacked us everybody thought we were crazy everybody attacked me I had I had like people making hate posts about me and my family I had people going in these good neighbor groups of woodland the irony is real but talking about oh let's think and naming all the officers who murdered my brother to thank them you know it was just really sick and twisted like I know if I wasn't how I am and part of that is because how my brothers and me grew up I grew up tough I grew up you know fighting with my brothers I grew up doing a lot of stuff you know and they always told me they 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 made me tough like I was kind of like their little brother but little sister and I have no doubt that if I wasn't like this they would have gotten away with just 
totally covering it up and Absolutely. you know they kind of have gotten away with it they're all free to are retired now but it's, it's i mean how many times does that happen over and over and over again yep you know it's speaking of, like you you have your uh you started the uh your the your foundation right and um this we report on this as jason said we've been reporting on instances like this for a decade now at, at free thought project and it's it's so sad you know like we hear we hear sto stories like yours over and over but we don't hear people fighting back against it like you you know your voices of strength organization is pretty awesome and you've been doing this that like everybody this happened in 2017 you know she, marissa's been at this for a while and and staying strong you know have you like since you started this uh this organization have you come across other people with similar stories like this that you're able to like expose or or um you know or help find the truth in their instances of police brutality yes absolutely so right after my brother was killed because i was so vocal because i was using social media i quickly started meeting other impacted families who were showing support on my pages who were coming and saying justice for big mike you know who were sending me messages of love and support those are the people i lost all my friends i lost you know my clients who were my personal training clients of many years you know everybody just i'm like looking back people turned on me because of my stance because i didn't stay quiet because i was i was telling the truth you know and a lot of people everything changed and it is what it is but the people that came to my side were other impacted families who loved ones were also killed by police uh, within days a friend of mine my first friend within all of this who lost her husband a similar way in um hayward she came and met me and my my mom a couple days later and just you know filling us in just giving us a heads up at that time you know we're still in shock we're still not quite grasping and understanding and grieving but that's that's why i started voices of strength i quickly started organizing with families um ever since it first happened organizing i started going out to all the actions that i could make it to locally or within you know a couple of hours i really just dove in and i went by myself to all this stuff like i i my family they they support and they will show up but it's been me to do everything even from obtaining lawyers and the evidence like i've literally done everything and i seen a need the reason i started voice of strength i saw the need for support for families i knew that i knew quickly that this was bigger than my brother's death and I realized that it's, it's, it's really creepy. It's a bigger issue and it's real. And once we started sharing our stories, you know, connecting things, we see that it's all very similar. My story, my family story sounds super crazy. And it is one of the crazier ones that I've heard, but there are so many like this. When you, when you actually sit down and talk to a family, when you look at the documents, the evidence, the evidence that comes from the police themselves, um, you just kind of you see a different angle. So I, I I wanted to display that. I that's why I didn't call it justice for Big Mike. I called it voices of strength because it was about all the families, all the victims. Like what about the victims that their families didn't fight back, didn't question the police narrative? What about the victims that died that 
their loved ones believe the police narrative. That that saddens me to think about that. And that's why I'm I'm still here, you know, I'm still here. I've seen so many I've hundreds of families. We we are connected with hundreds of families. Uh, I've traveled to different states to uh, connect with families, meet families, be there with them through their times. I've sat through um, trial for families who are fighting back and it's been a long ride, but that was my motivation because what I see with the mainstream media, the narrative that the government, the police, everybody wants to believe, I don't see it to be, it's, it's not factual. It's, you know, it's how they want it to look. So that's why when I kind of, when I came across uh, the pages you guys run i was impressed i was happy to see um multiple you know a lot of killings being covered not just certain ones not just high profile ones and the consistency i i did appreciate that and that's when i first connected with jason um but yeah the families uh just for an example i i was contacted on TikTok from a sister in southern california her brother was killed over 20 years ago and so what I've recently been doing for her and what we help other families with is doing the records requests. So since California, the law change went into effect a few years ago, I told her, you know, they, they don't have answers. You know, I, I don't know how to help all these families. So I do what I can. And we actually receive some, they have 11 days to respond, 10 or 11 days to respond to these um, requests. And they can be held uh, accountable if they don't supposedly, but I put in a request, it's LASD, and we got some documents. I was actually pretty surprised to check my email again last week, and they told me they're actually working on getting more of the documents and stuff from that case. So, um, you know, it's it, it's not huge, you know, I'm not, it's not maybe giving her brother justice, but it means a lot to the families, one, to just be heard, to, to be able to relate and because all of us, this, what I shared, you know, about how I was counted out by my own people. Like we all go through that when we speak out and take a stance, you know, people don't really want to mess with us, but it, it, we just give back in certain ways like that. And it's been impactful to the families that we do work with. I would say it's extremely inspiring. And just the fact that these families have somebody to help guide them through some of these processes you know, it, that alone is, I would imagine, incredibly helpful because when you're in a, a place of shock and trauma and you're trying to kind of process all the grieving and everything, obviously, you know, the first couple of weeks when an incident like this happens is when you need to kind of be the most proactive. And I would imagine that many of these families really lean on you uh, for help in that, in those instances. And I could only imagine that, you know, you've provided so much assistance to these families in multiple ways. And I remember last October uh, of 2022, you organized a protest at the California State Capitol on October 22nd, which is the National Day of Police Protest. And instead of marching or chanting or even doing a protest, you actually invited numerous families who've been impacted by police violence. And I was there, I attended, I recorded the whole thing. And I guess the part that sticks out to me and makes me the most uncomfortable, and mind you guys, like I've been doing this for 12 years now, was that the fact that many, if not all the families had the same experiences when dealing with police who, you know, let's be honest, are a legalized gang who have the experience in covering up brutality, murders and crime. 
And when I heard the families speak about their experiences, trying to get answers, trying to get help, trying to get accountability, there was this continuity. There was this pattern that emerged that police were intentionally making those things difficult. And many of these families were even from different cities around California. Some were even from different states, but they all had that in common. The lack of help, the, la the lack of resources the departments provided to help these families understand what happened and to get justice. And you know, ultimately, I guess that's what happens when there's a justice system and law enforcement that are run by a government monopoly. But uh, I was looking at the news uh, this morning and one of the top headlines was that there was huge protests that broke out last night in France uh, after apparently a police officer killed a teenage boy. Uh, CBS reported as many as 180 arrests were made. And I know we've spoken about this before, Marissa, uh, how there's really not much of a rhyme or reason to what police violence stories become national news or inspire these huge national protests. And as someone who's been in this world, you know, as long as Matt and I have, we've seen countless stories that are probably far worse, you know, I mean, than what happened to, to George Floyd. In fact, for example, there were 64 people killed by police during the George Floyd trial. And we've seen countless police murders that were similar to George Floyd, where an officer was placing his knee on the victim's neck, and they didn't get even a fraction of the coverage. We've seen stories about prisoners being scalded with hot boiling water. Uh, we've covered two stories last year that happened about cops barging into people's apartments late at night or early in the morning and literally executing them as they slept on the couch. And I, I know that leads us to your brother's last words, which were, I can't breathe. And those words were immortalized by the death of Eric Garner in New York, whose crime was selling loose cigarettes. And of course, he got national attention and months of protests. Now, your brother's case hardly even had the local news covering it. So, you know, like, what's up with that? And do you think that there potentially is an agenda to which stories get covered? And uh, if so, like, what is that trying to accomplish, do you think? Yeah, yeah, thank you for asking. Um, this is something that is so hard to, one, deal with. I've already dealt with it. I understand how it works. But it's hard even when new families come on and, you know, they can't understand why their loved one's death, which was horrible, isn't getting more attention, why people aren't supporting, why their community does not care. And I could relate. I was so busy moving that I didn't have the time to sit there and be sad about it. But um, when my brother was killed, you know, we even our own family and friends didn't didn't show up for us. Some did. And most of the people who joined us for our first uh, protests were from out of town people who were kind of into activism and different things. They're the ones who showed up for, for us. And that's why I tried to make an effort to show up to four families these days. Um, you know, there's too many for me to keep up with, sadly. But, you know, the media, that's one thing that most of us families, of course, we despise. We hate them um, because, one, they put out the false narratives. They're putting out the police's words to be facts, you know, without even having the facts they're putting out these lies and they're helping to what we say is they kill our loved ones twice first physically then they kill their character through the media and they spread that so 
if you go back to my hometown, there's a lot of people who probably still think if they think about Mike Brera, they're going to think about the lie story. And so I definitely feel there is an agenda. Howard, there's so many killings every year. And, and like you said, some of them are more horrible. You know, all of them are very brutal and sick, but some of them, you know, are crazier and we can't even say that they need video to go viral or to get attention because there are so many that have video and still don't get the attention. Um, personally, my beliefs are, you know, they, they want, they, they pick ones that I don't know exactly how they get picked or which ones. I, I don't know how that works. You know, it's, it's really weird, but yeah just seen since my brother was killed there's been multiple of the high profile ones and mind you a lot of families hate hearing that word high profile because we believe i don't hate it it's just what it is but we believe all of our cases should be high profile yes but you know they want to keep going with this narrative that only some people are, are being killed and they want to a lot of people still yeah. think that it's just black people being killed and yep. that's it you know and that's one thing that is unique about voice of strength and why i wanted to start it because we do support all races we don't turn a white mother down because she's white you know we uh, that's one thing i needed to do especially after george george floyd was killed so many families were harmed um, you know, it's a time where we see the world going crazy. We see our country showing up, showing up, caring about this, this topic that is deep to and close to our hearts, you know, but a lot of families, they showed up to actions and protests in their own communities and they want to speak about their loved one. They have a right to it. You're there in their own community. That person was killed in this community that all these people want to gather and talk and protest and do all this crap for but you're telling a mother she can't have mic time because she's not black and i do want to say um it's not just non-black people being treated like this because i know plenty of black families who have not got the support from blm or folks that say they're blm affiliated uh black mothers who have been sent away because it wasn't about their child at that time and that's not right so personally for me being a brown skin i'm a mexican woman I have been told, and it's always, you know what's crazy, and it does drive me crazy, is that it's always people who have not experienced police brutality or lost a loved one who try to tell us, it's not your time to talk. It's Black people's time. But, you know, I talk about my brother every day and other people that it's, it is my time to talk. You know, it's not anybody, I don't feel anybody who has not experienced what we went through should try to silence us. That's a whole another issue in itself. Um, it's crazy because even my own people that I grew up with, my own community, when George Floyd was killed, when Tyree Nichols was killed, all of a sudden everybody posting about it, everybody changing their profile, people are showing up, but you didn't show up. You know, you you personally know me and my brother, but you didn't even share damn posts. You know, it's a lot of people, uh, it brings me back to so many people are followers. You know, people are followers. They're going to do what they think is popular, what is trending. But to me, I think it's pretty phony. I think it's phony. I think if people, you know, that's part of the problem in itself is the people. Agreed. Yeah. And you know that uh, on the same day, to, to prove your point or reiterate it, on the same day that George Floyd was killed, we put out an article um, 
and noted the five other people that were also killed by police that day who got no news coverage whatsoever. Yeah. Joe uh, Castellanos, uh, Justin Mink, Deion Johnson, Gary Dorton, and uh, Raymar Gagarin. And uh, Deion Johnson was, was a black guy, and he was asleep in his car, and they killed him in his car. All the other ones were in, like, mental illness states, and it's just – it's crazy. None of these people got any media attention, and it's uh, – like like you said, it's it's – like shut up everybody else this is the one we're going to run with and this is what everybody has to talk about and if you don't go this narrative then you're a you're a bad person yeah yeah that's exactly and i do want to point out my brother his killing is a combination pretty similar to a combination of tyree nichols and george floyd's killing but so after my brother was i mean after those two people were killed the law enforcement which is the pd the sheriffs the the da who cleared the officers in our community put out statements they put out statements long statements basically saying their condolences to george floyd and tyree nichols families that they don't operate like that that this is why policies are put in place this is why you know they're shaming these damn police who did it and meanwhile and you know i hopped on those posts with the pd like how dare you guys the disrespect is real. The disrespect is real. And then you have the community eating it up saying, thank you, Wilden PD. I'm like, what? Um, so something else that we've incorporated into Voices of Strength, we have a page and um, part of our, on our website, we also have a page, uh, Killer Cops USA, which we highlight these killing cops and we provide some context, um, their information, the departments, the victims, and a little background and we put their faces and their names and info up there. I felt that was important. And I made a separate page for that because I feel like, they, well, I know that they often hide these uh, from us. They like once officers kill, I actually know an officer in our community who he killed someone similar to my brother years prior, but I actually knew him from work. And I remember he had to get off of social media and he was like, at that time, I didn't know he killed someone, but now that I know more, they uh, made him get off of social media. He had to kind of hide out. So that's what they do with cops. You know, they don't, and I'm like, no, their faces need to be blasted. It needs to be out there more. They can't just hide from this. You literally took somebody's life. Right. Yeah. And to lend some credence to what you were saying about um, not excluding any certain type of race, uh, I could second that. I, I actually know firsthand that Marissa is exactly doing that because for about a year and a half, the Free Thought Project was covering a story about a father of two who was killed by Stockton police, uh, Shane Sutherland. And when I went out to uh, one of marissa's recent events in fact i think it was the anniversary of your brother's death in woodland i got to meet shane's mother karen sutherland she thanked me for us covering it and covering it in a, a fair manner instead of the slant and the angle which made police sound like they were in the right that the local media used and uh boy let me just tell you guys like after doing this work for as long as we have and, and covering people's stories that we've never met, we've never known, we're just doing it because it's the right thing to do, right? To shine a light on, on this darkness. It, it felt very fulfilling and very meaningful when I finally got to meet Karen and hear her thank me personally and give me a hug for doing the work that we do.
this type of work is often thankless, you know, but the fact that I got that kind of reaffirms exactly why we do this, you know, we are getting close to the end of the podcast now. So, uh, I I did kind of want to wrap up, I guess, maybe some final thoughts on, uh, the future of your brother's case. And I know that the courts ruled that the officers were trained to know that when somebody's handcuffed and prone on the ground, that additional restraint is uh, unconstitutionally excessive. And these cops were even trained in de-escalation techniques. As you mentioned, the officer's use of taser was found unreasonable because they violated established laws as, as well as department policies, you know, about the taser use, which ultimately led them being denied to the qualified immunity. And there's just so much to this case. I, I know Almost all the initial local reports were false statements. Of course, the the body cam footage eventually proved that to you. And five months after Michael was killed, the the Yolo County District Attorney announced that he wouldn't be filing charges against the Woodland police officers. Um, Now, I I know that this is still in the process of being heard, and eventually it's going to be in the courts. But just like some final thoughts here, like, are you familiar with the judge in this case? And like, how confident are you in that you will actually get a fair trial? Yeah, good question. So actually, I sat in on a trial for the trial against Zach PD for killing 19-year-old Daryl Richards uh, late last year. I sat in almost every day. That was a bit over three weeks for that trial. And so I seen him in action. And I... No, to answer your question, no, I don't think we will have a fair trial. Um, he that is the judge that granted that did not grant them QI. That's when they appealed it, took it to the appeals court. Appeals court unanimously decided no QI. But as it was sent back to Judge Mendez, the district judge, the federal judge on our case, who will be having our trial, he something they had the appeals had told him that he needed to reclarify his answer since we have multiple claims so he ultimately did not give them qi for the fourth amendment however he changed up and did grant them qi for the 14 amendment claim which is where it falls under my brother was not married so my parents are plaintiffs on the case along with his two daughters so basically what they're saying is, well, 14th Amendment is where the familial loss comes in, that it needs to be proven that this will shock the conscience and that the officers knew that when they were doing this. So it's just really dumb and unfair to me that they're saying, yeah, for the Fourth Amendment, yeah, but they're saying the 14th Amendment needs, it has a higher standard to prove so that's kind of a slap in our faces uh, because basically their decision earlier this month was to drop my parents from the lawsuit. Mind you, last year in 2023, before they appealed the no QI, they tried to drop my nieces from the case. My two, my brother's baby girls try to drop them. So, you know, it's all a game. They're trying to buy more time. They're trying to wind us out, exhaust us. You know, they want to be frank, they want plaintiffs to die. You know, they want us to be done. And I don't, 
I, we are going to appeal that decision because it's not right. Our, our lawyers do not believe that it was legally right. They believe that we will win if we appeal it, but it's going to put us back another year and a half, maybe before we actually get to stand trial. By then it's going to be over seven years that my brother has been killed. Um, what I did oh see God. with this judge is I felt, you know, I seen the bias during the trial that I sat in on this good friend of mine. And for example, when the only eyewitness that actually seen this kid being killed, when it was his turn to speak, that man wanted to speak. He wanted to share what he's seen. He wanted to share his testimony. It happened in his yard. The cops had already shooed him out, but he was watching from the second floor in his bathroom. So he's seen it clearly. He was trying to explain what he's seen and they kept cutting him off, you know, ruling against it, ruling that, you know, basically he couldn't narrate it is their wording. But when the police officers were up there and the police officers that didn't even see it directly, he was letting them do what they didn't let the eyewitness do. Um, I, I believed it was unfair. And I mean, at the end of the day, they all work for the system. They all work together. And, you know, I could only pray and hope that we get a fair jury. Um, I personally don't think that some, I mean, anything could happen. I've seen cases that deserve to win get tossed out. You know, I've seen it happen, but if some, they sit there and listen to that four and a half minutes of my brother's murder and torture. And then there also is with, I just recently found a couple months back that within the audio, I listened to it later, later, because there's like, you know, it's not just a few minutes. It's a few minutes where he was killed, but there's all the other audio. These, these men, these murderers are laughing. They're laughing about killing my brother. They're laughing, saying my brother went down immediately. One of them says, well, he dropped to the ground. And I, I was just like, should I stop beating the fuck out of him? Sorry, for my language, guys. But he, he said that, you know, he they so they're on audio admitting my brother dropped to the ground and they were just beating him like what? And I, I don't even think our, our lawyers had found that yet. Um, All good. So I don't. I don't, but, you know, I pray for a fair case. I pray for the evidence to share. Um, I believe it, they, it speaks volumes. And just to uh, touch on, and they violated all their own policies, asphyxiation, the use of taser, crisis intervention. Um, there's more, like all of them, they violated. So um, when these civil lawsuits, are, when it comes down to it, that's something that is being looked at. Did they violate policy? Like, even if the person may have committed a crime or been wrong or didn't listen to their commands, they still are supposed to look at policy because, I mean, it's not a criminal, it's not a criminal trial, which we wish it was. So it kind of comes down to, are they following their policy where you're negligent and not following it? And they broke them all. And the fact that they were laughing is probably one of the many indicators that your brother was in fact being targeted. And, uh, you know, all signs point to 
they're guilty in this. And I think they know they're guilty. And that's exactly why they're trying to to buy more time. And it's episodes like this that it makes me want to have longer podcast episodes because there's still so much to talk about, Marissa. I know that you had mentioned that the lawyers also that originally you had retained for this also were colluding with the police as well. We don't have to get into that now, but uh, that they also called off medical support for your brother several times as well after uh, the incident, which is suspect in its own right. And then, of course, you know, the penis that they tried to throw at your family, which was like a $200,000 settlement for killing your brother. You know, like, I mean, this, there's so much to this. And I feel like we got a pretty good start on it. I feel like um, you did a wonderful job explaining the story. There's so many ins and outs, so many facets and moving parts. And you absolutely nailed it. I know you're out here doing this by yourself, you know, so I'm, I'm going to urge our listeners to please support Marissa. She's literally the definition of a strong woman and uh, her organization could definitely use social media support with more likes and shares, comments. Um, she could use financial support and moral support, of course, you know, most of all. And Marissa, I know you recently started a donation fund to help pay for your first ever office for Voices of Strength. So we'll definitely link to that in the description below. All right, free thinkers, this episode is nearing the end. We wanted to take this time to remind you, if you found value in this conversation, please consider hitting that like button and subscribing to the Free Thought Project podcast on your preferred platform of choice. It's an easy, no-cost way to support us and ensure you never miss an episode. Also, the Free Thought Project operates primarily on the generosity of our listeners. If you believe in our mission and support our cause, please consider donating or subscribing by going to the membership tab at the top of our website. Your contributions ensure we are able to continue our important work having these important conversations, and your donations help us do just that. Lastly, if you're part of an organization or own a business that aligns with our mission and values, we are currently inviting sponsorships for our podcast. This is a fantastic opportunity to promote your product or make your brand visible to our engaged audience while supporting meaningful discourse. Thank you for your support, Freethinkers, and as always, thank you for listening. Please tell our listeners how they could follow you, uh, like what social media platforms you're on, and I guess what the best way to connect with you is. Yes, yes. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, So we can be found on, we have a website, uh, voicesofstrength.info. All of our contact info is there. I'm also on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, which I don't use as much, but under Voices of Strength. And then for my personal page, which I do share a lot there as well, it's Marissa Barrera underscore. And yes, we definitely, I've kind of been running this by myself um, for the last almost three years. And, you know, it's really hard to get to get support, to get funding and things like that while we're trying to manage everything. But, you know, we're sticking it out and we want people to, to know and see us as we are, we are a 501c3 organization. And, you know, we are we are leaders. Like some of these families are the strongest people I've ever met. And some of the kindest people I've met as well. And we want to shift the narrative and the leadership who, what people view as the leadership when it comes to police brutality, to, to look at people like us who are out here doing the work, who have lived it, who have the experience. And we have the heart too. Like we have the most motivation for this. So 
thank you guys for having me and um, appreciate you guys taking the time and caring and sharing things for us. Absolutely. And, you know, as I said in the beginning of the show, it really is inspiring how you turned a tragic event. I mean, something so horrifying that most people can't even imagine, you know, losing a family member in this way. And you turned it into something empowering for others. And instead of allowing that incident to forever define you or allow yourself to just become a victim, you decided to transform your loss and grief into community building and education and support. And also, most importantly, you know, you're inspiring dozens of families who have had their lives drastically changed due to the never ending cycle of police violence in this country. So for that, we commend you, Marissa, and thank you for your time today. Thank you. Thank you, guys.